Well, good morning. Warm welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Um, it's a privilege to gather together today, and we do so because of our common desire to worship and wonder at the God who saves us. This God is who came to dwell with us as a man who was unjustly punished and put to death for our failures and who defeated death on the cross at Calvary. His name is Jesus. He calls us to believe in him and to faithfully follow. Let's consider these words in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father in heaven, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Okay, if you've got your Bibles handy, I'm going to have a look at, um, I'm going to read this passage from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1, and it's um, verses 1 through to 11. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Amen. Well, good morning. Let me uh, add to Dave's welcome. Lovely to have you with us. Um, if you're visiting, my name is Duncan. I have the privilege of being uh, or serving as pastor here, and uh, we're going to return to that, uh, those opening verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Before we get into that, let me mention a couple of things. Uh, we have our uh, big questions session tonight at six o'clock here. That'll be out in the atrium. Um, tonight we're going to be asking the question, why do, I need, why do we need faith in a scientific age? I think many people look on at the Christian faith, and indeed any faith for that matter, and say, it just seems so irrelevant. We have all the answers we need at our fingertips from scientific discoveries and so on. So we're going to think through that question tonight, if that would be of interest to you or to someone you know, and come along, six o'clock tonight. And also just to mention that this week our, our uh, home Bible study groups meet again. Uh, they're starting up again this week. 
uh, and you'd be very welcome to join. We have uh, several groups meeting Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday evenings. There's a Zoom option as well on Wednesday for those who are not so keen or able to meet in person. Uh, you'd be very welcome to be part of this. Come and speak to me afterwards. I'd love to connect you into a group. Uh, all of that positivity gives way as we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And uh, if you don't have the passage in front of you in the, in the diary that you received on the way in, um, it's, it's printed there and the translation I'll be using is there as well. I was reflecting with someone this week on how much, how much simpler life is when you're a young child. I mean, it should be simple, shouldn't it? It should be carefree. That's what we want it to be for our kids. When you're a small child, you're not stressed about where the next meal is coming from. You're not stressed about how the household budget is holding up. You're not stressed about how secure your parents' jobs are. None of those sorts of things. These are the things that clog up adults' minds. These are the things that make adults anxious, that cause them to lose sleep. But we shelter our children from those things, don't we? We don't let them watch the news. Or if you are, stop letting them watch the news. We don't want them to be filled with those kind of anxieties. We don't want to burden them with the stories that have sad endings. We want them to read about the mouse that doesn't get eaten by the gruffalo, you know. We, we want to give them the happy ending stories. For our kids, we're, we're willing to, to shift into another world completely, one where we pretend that those anxieties and troubles just don't exist. And knowing when and how to, to burst those protective bubbles and show our children the harsher realities of life. It requires wisdom. The problem is, for an awful lot of adults, we keep ourselves in these protective bubbles, some kind of alternate reality where some of the harsh truths of life, they just don't exist. We do have this extraordinary capacity to ignore reality, to give problems the cold shoulder. If we, if we don't acknowledge it, then, then, then maybe it will just somehow, someday sort itself out. I think men are particularly guilty of this at times. How many men have ignored the warning signs of illness, sometimes for many months, pretending that it just isn't there. How many people in serious debt spend years deepening their financial hole rather than admit there's a problem and seek help? And how many of us live our lives without a thought that one day we are going to die? I mean, this is perhaps the greatest illusion that we fall for day after day after day, the illusion of immortality. We don't think deeply about death because we far prefer our imaginary happy place in this protective bubble where death just does not exist. Well, today we take a first step into a book of the Bible that says it's time to burst that bubble. It is time to burst that bubble. You have fooled yourself for long enough. It is time you faced the truth about life. And so this book of Ecclesiastes, it is not a cozy read. 
It is not bursting with pretty verses that you would print out, put in a frame, and put on your kitchen wall. It is not bursting with those kind of, those kind of verses. It is an altogether more uncomfortable experience. The book of Ecclesiastes is, is part of what we call the wisdom, the wisdom literature in the Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. These are the five books of wisdom, and they're quite varied, often poetical, but they are there, as the name, the name suggests, they're there to impart wisdom, to get into the deeper parts of our being so that we might be equipped to navigate life. These books, and especially this book of Ecclesiastes, they force us to look at things that we would naturally turn away from, important things. And so, for all of the discomfort that we might feel as we work through this book of Ecclesiastes, God willing, we must remember that this is a book about life, a book about how to live life, how to see clearly what life is, and yes, how to find true joy in life. So, you see, the author of this book is introduced to us in the opening verse. He is the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And it becomes very clear in chapter 2 that in this book we are being shown the perspective on life that comes when we stand in the shoes of King Solomon, Israel's most prosperous king, Israel's wisest king. And we're going to see that this exalted figure is able to thoroughly test the meaning of life and to give us an honest evaluation of what he finds. He'll tell us what there is to be found in life when we immerse ourselves in trying to, to gain knowledge, when we immerse ourselves in being merry, when we immerse ourselves in trying to build a legacy or build up wealth, or when we throw ourselves into work or into sex, he will leave no stone unturned and he will give us the results. And in fact, he doesn't leave us to wait to the end of the book to hear the assessment. Right there in verse 2 is his theory of everything. What does he say? Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That word vanity is often hard to translate with a single word. Dave read from a translation where they go with meaningless. Probably vanity is closer to it because the original word, it means breath, vapor. The idea of something that is short-lived, something that is ungraspable. And that is the preacher's first point for us today. Life is a vapor. Life is a vapor. And what does he mean by that? I mean, why such a bleak outlook? Well, the question that's been on his mind is the question he offers up in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This question is the preacher's first step in proving to us that life really is a vapor. Look with me where he places us in verse 3. We are under the sun. That is uh, his way of saying we are, we are creatures. We live here and now. Under the sun applies to every one of us. That's the only place that you can live out a human life is under the sun. 
So, for all of your toil here in this life, what do you gain? Or more literally, for all of the toil of life, what is left over at the end? What is left over at the end of it? What are you going to have to show for it? And the answer is implied in how he asks the question, isn't it? The answer is nothing. Life is a vapor. Think of it like your breath when you step out on a cold day, you know, maybe (laughs) mid-June, and uh, your breath appears in the air for a short while, and then it disappears with no trace that it was ever there. And there is nothing you can do to, to keep it there any longer. You can't change its fleeting nature. You cannot grasp hold of it. You cannot store it somewhere. It is a vapor. And he says, this is what life is like. For all of the toil and all of the hardship, at the end of it, it is gone. And there is nothing left. In the New Testament, James warns about presumptuous planning with this reminder. He says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This is the first lesson for us from the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Not just that life is short, but that our lives leave nothing of lasting significance behind. He says there is no gain. Now, we might want to push against that. But let's take time and just allow Ecclesiastes to teach us. Because the preacher is going to press this home. And what he does next is he enlists some teachers. He's going to say to us, listen to these teachers and see that what I'm saying is right. First of all, he says to us here, let creation be your teacher. Look at the world around you and you will see that it confirms that life is a vapor. Think of how, you see how he puts this here in verse 4, think of how generation after generation comes and goes, and yet in marked contrast to that, what do you see? The earth remains forever. It's as if he's saying here, you know, the earth doesn't even notice that you've been here. All of these generations that have come and gone, the earth hasn't even noticed. The book of Ecclesiastes is somewhere between two and a half thousand and three thousand years old. In that time, countless generations have come and gone, and yet these words still hold true. The earth is still there, and it hasn't skipped a beat for all those passing generations. Look at the things that he sees as being immovable in the earth. Look at verse 5. The sun, it rises, it goes down, and it rushes round, and it does it all again. It's relentless. Verse 6, the wind, it cycles round to the south, round to the north, and its circuits are never done. It just keeps on going and going. And just watch a river. It never stops flowing, pouring into the sea day after day after day, and yet the sea is never full. It's relentless. Its work is never done, and it keeps going on and on and on. And isn't that in contrast to you? And all these generations that have come and gone, 
and the earth has kept on going in its relentless pattern. And when you're gone, the earth will continue in these things, utterly unimpacted by your short life. If you're ever tempted to have a sense of self-importance, just take a look at the earth. In all of its relentless cycles, it has been here doing those things for as long as human beings have been here, and it will be doing it long after you're gone. That's his message to us. But the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he doesn't want us just to, to contra contrast ourselves with the relative permanence of the earth. He wants to see ourselves as sharing something in common with the earth as well. So, having introduced creation as our teacher, from verse 8 he says, let experience be your teacher. Let your experience teach you that life is a vapor. The cycling of the earth confirms the preacher's thesis that everything is an empty vapor that offers no gain at the end of it. The patterns of the earth, they are these repetitive cycles, but his point also is that they don't make any progress. The sun carries its same course, the wind keeps cycling back round, the streams never manage to fill the seas, and your personal experience tells you that your life is the same. The same thing is true of your life. Look at how the preacher draws on, on the senses in verse 8. The eye keeps taking things in, and yet you're never satisfied with what you see. The ear keeps taking in new information, but you're never satisfied with what you hear. He says this is a, a weariness, a futility. In fact, so weary a thing that, that we don't have enough words to even articulate it. Always working, working, working. Toiling, toiling, and toiling, and yet never able to bring us to satisfaction. And in fact, the entire history of humanity, he says, is defined by these repetitive cycles. Let human experience be your teacher. Look at how he puts it in verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And, as he famously puts it, there is nothing new under the sun. What is he saying here? He's not, he's not denying that new inventions come along. He's not denying that iPhone 25 is better than iPhone 24 or wherever we are with these. What he's saying is his concern is not to deny that there is inventiveness in the world. His point is that in general, the situations that arise, the crises that we face, are really nothing that has never been faced before. Whether it is one country's invasion of another, whether it is an authoritarian government abusing its power, whether it is teenagers rebelling against parental authority, whether it is boredom in your job, frustration with your church, there is nothing new under the sun. This has all been done before. Here, now, in this life, we are redoing what has been done before. I mean, we love to think that our situation is unique, but it's really not. 
And even things that we've been convinced are unique and we've even said to each other, well, there's never been times like these. It's not true. Wars have been fought before. Pandemics have been endured before. You name it, it's been done. Therefore, to have the the eagerness of verse 10 to hanker after something new as if finding the new thing is what will change everything. If only I could get this new thing, then everything would be different. He says that is a pointless exercise. How often we think like that. In fact, we're constantly being trained to think like that. The world of advertising is there to convince you that if only you had this new thing, then your problems, whatever they may be, will go away. Your life will be better. You will be the person that you wish you had always could have been if you just get this new thing. Oh, we need to hear these words. Is there a thing of which it's said, see, this is new? He says there's no new thing. There's no missing link. There's no magic shortcut that will get you to this great destination that you have in mind. There is nothing new under the sun. And oh, we need to hear this because we believe that lie that our problems can be solved. Things will be so much better if I get that new job, that new relationship, that new body, that new church, that new wardrobe, you name it. But the truth is, says the preacher, there is nothing new under the sun. It's already been in the ages before. It's not going to change the fact that your life is a vapor. One more thing in these introductory verses before we we chew on this a little bit more. He concludes in verse 11 by saying, Life is quickly forgotten. It's quickly forgotten. This is a painful bubble for many of us to let the preacher burst, but he knows that we need it. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, or um, in the footnote there it says this could be, there is no remembrance of former people or former generations. Now remember, he's telling us, let, let your experience be your teacher. Think how quickly things and people are forgotten. The 21st of October used to be a big day of commemoration in Britain. You used to get a holiday. Because on that day in 1805, Vice Admiral Nelson defeated the French and the Spanish at the Battle of Trafalgar. And so each year in the aftermath of that victory, Trafalgar Day was celebrated and remembered. But you know what has happened. Time has marched on. That battle drifted further and further into history. There came a point where there was no one alive who could remember it. And so the enthusiasm for remembering it waned and well, 21st of October will come and go this year. Trafalgar Day has all but disappeared. Well, for almost every human being, they are destined to be utterly forgotten. 
And be sure, says the preacher, nor will there be any remembrance of later generations yet to be among those who come after. A friend of mine often challenges folks to recall the names of their great-great-grandparents. We're just going back four generations, your great-great-grandparents. And for the vast majority of us, we have no idea who they were or even what their names were. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, and it will be the same for your great-great-grandchildren. They won't remember you. You will be just as forgotten. It's quite a picture we're looking at this morning, isn't it? But here's the thing, friends, we're not looking at a picture. We're looking into a mirror. And looking into a mirror is most the most frightening picture of all, usually. The preacher says to us, look at your life. Look at your life. It is short. It slips through your fingers like sand. And it leaves no lasting change, no lasting progress behind it. There's no surplus at the end. And here's the thing, it will be forgotten. I suppose we have to say, well, why? I mean, what is it about our lives that makes all of that so inevitable? And it's the thing that he doesn't directly mention in these verses, but yet it is the elephant in the room. It's because of death. Normally, we spend our lives in denial that this sort of message could possibly be true about me. And we hide in those bubbles of comfort and distraction and busyness. And rarely, if ever, do we have to face up to these realities of life. But I want to put it to you today that, that for all of us, there's a sense that things have changed. The last two years have burst some of those bubbles for many of us. Our eyes have been opened, even if it's just briefly, to see the brevity, the fragility of life, to see the reality of death. And God is saying to us in His Word today, hang on, hang on, don't try and, and rebuild those bubbles, stop. Look at what you can see around you. There is something you need to take in here. This disruption to your world has shown you some of the truth about life. So do not miss this opportunity to learn from it. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes wants for us. Now, there is a tendency to think when we read Ecclesiastes that when the preacher speaks in these negative ways that he must be describing life without God. Yes, of course, we can see vanity of vanities. That's what life without knowing God is. But if you know God, then that doesn't describe your life. Well, yes, of course, life knowing God is different. In fact, it is life as it was meant to be. But it does not remove these creaturely limitations I mean, we're all still living under the sun. The preacher is not an atheist. 
He's not a secularist. He believes in God. He writes this book to people who believe in God. He's going to show us as you go through this book that he believes all good gifts come from God. He believes in judgment that God will deliver after death. But he is showing us that the key to understanding life is understanding and accepting the limitations that we've been given by God. And he says it is impossible to have some kind of surplus at the end of my life. I cannot make myself into something other than what I am. And we hate this. We hate this. It was the first sin in the Garden of Eden. God placed a limitation on his creatures, those that he had made in his own image. It wasn't the limitation of death. It was the limitation of command, forbidding them to eat the food of one tree in paradise. And yet Adam and Eve were not content with God's limitations. They wanted to break free from these rules that God had imposed on them. They wanted to attain to the same status that God had. And so they ignored their creatureliness, believing that if they rebelled against God, it would yield the great gain of becoming like God. And the result was disastrous. And you know what? There is nothing new under the sun. Every generation since and even now is still doing the same thing. We are insistent that we can make some gain. We can have some surplus for all of our toil and we will use whatever we have to get there. And so some are using work to find this gain. If I give everything I have to my work, to getting that promotion, to being successful in this position, to whipping this department into shape, then I will have achieved something. I will have something to show for this life. I'll have made it. Others throw themselves into making money. If I could just get this house or those houses, that car or those cars, if I could just get that stock portfolio, then that will be my gain. I will have become something. But look into your own heart. We'll stop at nothing. If I could just run this many marathons, if I could climb those many hills, if I could just have those abdominal muscles, Whatever it is we're using to try and find that gain, however hard we might be working to try and buck the trend, shake off these humanly limitations, Ecclesiastes says you're on the wrong road, the wrong road entirely. Your life is short. You will die and you will vanish without a trace and be forgotten regardless of how many hours you spent in the office. Accept that and you're on the road to really living life. You know, Jesus Christ was not averse to speaking like the preacher in Ecclesiastes. He said this in Mark chapter 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? I mean, what Jesus describes there is the ultimate gain, to gain the whole world. I mean, whatever it is you want out of life most, it's encompassed in that, isn't it? The whole world of wealth, the whole world of adulation, the whole world of achievement. To have that, to gain all of that, and yet forfeit your soul, to lose your very being at the end of it all, is there, is there a more tragic thing? Friends, we have been created by God. We are mortal, not immortal like God is. We have been made with the limitations of creatures, and as such, we've been made to depend upon Him. The fish that thinks it will be more free if it could escape the tank is a foolish fish. For he only lives life to the full when he is in the environment he was created to be in. The same thing applies to us. We were made to depend upon God, and living life fully is found in knowing and trusting God. We might think we will be freer jumping out of that tank, but it only leads to death. The preacher believes that there is nothing better. You read through the book of Ecclesiastes. I really encourage you to do that. If you read through it, you'll see the preacher thinks there's nothing better in this life than the joy of, of working, of enjoying food and drink, of learning, of having relationships. But their joy is found when we realize they are gifts from God to us. They're not some tools that we've been given to try and make ourselves into something new. They're gifts to be received and to be enjoyed and to help us to worship God. We find joy in this life when we receive those things from God's hand and use them for His glory. This will be, you read through this book, this is his repeated conclusion when we try and fashion some gain for ourselves from this world, boy, is it vanity of vanities. But when we receive the things from God as a gift from God and enjoy them as His gifts, then there is joy. There is joy. Life is still short. You'll still be forgotten. But there is joy. Now, we have to confess we haven't done that. Each one of us, to some degree or other, we've been sucked in to this seeking gain for ourselves from God's gifts. I mean, this is part of the definition of what it means to be a sinner, is to turn everything that God gives us and to make me the center of the universe. This is here to serve me, to give me meaning, to give me satisfaction, to give me prominence. And is that sinful mindset that we all are born into this world with that separates us from God, just like Adam and Eve were, put out from the presence of God. But here is the most amazing thing, that even if you read all of Ecclesiastes, you'll find the preacher in Ecclesiastes didn't see clearly. 
It is that God, that God would come to us. That God himself would dwell under the sun. That God would become a human being with all of the repetitive toil, all of the creaturely limitations that come with being a human being. And he would live the life of obedience to God that none of us have lived. Or indeed, that none of us could ever live. And he gave that perfect life as a sacrifice to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. This is why Christians make so much about the cross, that even when we're reading a passage of Scripture like this that makes no mention of the cross, that we have to be led there because because actually it's there that Jesus died not just at the hands of men, but He died under the curse of God. And we can be sure that God accepted His sacrifice because God raised Jesus from the dead so that all who trust in Him, who believe that His life, His death, His resurrection were for them, they are forgiven, sins forgiven, restored to God, given eternal life. Now, the Christian's life is still a vapor. We're still living under the sun. Life is still short. You still feel the sand running through your fingers. It is the case that this world will not remember you four generations' time. But we live in a new knowledge that though we will not be able to refashion ourselves into something by our efforts in this world, that there is everything beyond this life. The Apostle Paul found himself in prison, writing a letter back to one of his favorite churches, I think we could say. The people who belonged to that church brought him great joy. And he found himself in prison not knowing what was going to happen next. There were really two options. He could be set free, or he could lose his life. And so in that letter to the Philippians, which we're going to be looking at in our house groups in coming weeks, he reflects on it, and he thinks, well, what do I hope happens? And he says, well, you know, if I die then I'll go to be with Christ, which is far better. And if I'm set free, then that means I can do more work for the gospel, and that would be good for you. And he sums this up beautifully. These two options that lie before him, he can sum up like this. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What gain is there What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The preacher in Ecclesiastes is right, he gains nothing. What gain is there in receiving the free gift of God, the finished work of Jesus Christ, receiving that by faith and gratitude? What gain is there? There is everything. Everything. For you gain God Himself. 
And this life that we live is a preparation for that. Not to fashion some great super meaning for ourselves from what God has given, but to prepare our hearts to be with Him, to worship Him, so we might serve Him here. The writer to Ecclesiastes is not going to tell you to give up your work. He's going to tell you to be the best worker you can be. He's not going to tell you that you shouldn't enjoy life. He's going to say you should enjoy it as fully as you can. But you only find these things as you know the living God. And here we have this wonderful message to proclaim. You can know the living God through the Savior that He sent, Jesus Christ, who died for sinners, rose that they might have eternal life. And that is an offer that is extended to you this day. Life is short. Death is coming. You'll soon be forgotten, but never forgotten in the presence of God when you trust in His Son. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for this book of your words. Lord, we thank you that your Spirit has put these words on the page. And though, Father, these are not the words that we would necessarily ever choose to hear, Lord, we thank you that these are words that we need to hear. And we pray, Father, that as we, as we allow your words, as we allow your Spirit to, to burst those bubbles that we've, we've, we've constructed to protect us from the realities of life, Lord, that we would see life as clearly as we've ever seen it, and that it would lead us, that it would lead us to come to Jesus Christ in faith, realizing the emptiness of trusting ourselves and the only gain on offer when we come to trust in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, help us as we, as we wrestle with these things. Lord, help us to not bury our heads in the sand, but, Lord, to see this perspective on life, what it means to live under the sun as a creature, but a creature made to worship and to know you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he has restored what was broken. May we live in the joy of that, we pray in his name. Amen.